For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. The Abattoir in the Australian Outback After a year of fattening up in a faeces-covered paddock, the cow is herded onto a trunk. Already his horns have been burned off, and his testicles have been cut out, and now he rumbles in the dark, packed in with other cattle, no water, no food. The journey lasts a day, the subtropical sun flogging the truck, and finally the cow arrives in the centre of Aberdeen, a small town in New South Wales, Australia. The back door opens, a ramp has been erected, and all the cattle clamber out. The cow's big dark eyes adjust to the light. He is climbing the ramp, he is following the others, and then comes the shot. A bolt in the head, he is stunned. His mind is a blank as he is hung on a hook and swings onto the killing floor. That's where the woman waits. She is slathered in blood, her knives are sharp, and with a swift, decisive slash, she cuts the cow's throat. Blood gurgles from the gash, and now his body swings away to be gutted and skinned. He was 14 months old. But it's all the same to the woman. Just another kill. She sharpens her knife and waits. Unlike many of her colleagues, she loves her job. She relishes the sensation of cutting into the still-breathing flesh and taking the life of such a big, strong beast. The thick smell of blood does not sicken her. It only sharpens her focus and her appetite. And then the next stunned beast swings onto the floor, and she attacks. The slaughterhouse was the biggest employer in the little town of Aberdeen, Australia. The second biggest was the coal mine. Early in the morning, the workers arrive there in trucks. They wait around the mouth of the mine until the whistle blows, and then they follow each other down the ramp into the dark. On March 1st, 2000, some miners waited for their friend Pricey to arrive. The sun was just rising, instantly hot, and then the whistle blew. But Pricey didn't show. That wasn't like him. And what's worse, Pricey had given them a strange warning just the other day. 
his relationship with Catherine was the stuff of local legend. All the crazy, scary things she'd done or tried to do. And Pricey said that if he ever went missing, it was probably because of her. Now, his co-workers wondered if that grim prophecy had come true. They alerted their boss, who dispatched one of the miners to Pricey's house to look for him. When the miner arrived at the house, the first thing he noticed was Pricey's car in the driveway. He banged on the front door, but nobody answered. Pricey liked his beer as much as any man in town, but no matter how hard he drank the night before, he was always up early, waiting with the others, ready to sweat out last night's toxins in the punishing heat of the mine. There was no chance that Pricey was still sleeping. That's when the miner noticed the blood caked around the handle of the door. He banged again, harder, and tried the door, but it was locked. He called the police, and when the officers arrived, they looped to the back of the house and forced in the door. Passing through the kitchen and calling Pricey's name, they noticed two plates of food on the table. Some kind of meat had been cooked with pumpkin, zucchini, squash, and heaped in large, untouched portions on the plate. A pot sat on the stove, still hot. Someone had been cooking in the early morning hours. One of the officers opened the lid. What he saw inside would force him from his job for good and haunt his nightmares for the rest of his life. For a hundred years, the small town of Aberdeen has been sustained by the slaughterhouse and the mine. The workaday life there was hard and incredibly dangerous. In the abattoir, workers could be maimed by the tools of their trade, and countless accidents unfolded in the mine. Men crushed and paralyzed in the cramped and sooty shaft. That's not to mention the slow-motion disasters inflicted on the workers. Many people lost their minds on the killing floor, too many sweet animal eyes peering into their souls at the moment of their slaughter. And in the shaft, the men breathed black dust which seeped into their organs and poisoned their insides. In response to all this brutality, the men and women of Aberdeen gathered in the nights to drink hard and start fights and make love. Anything to transcend the horror and the fear. Yet for all the moral anarchy of those nights, Aberdeen was still a conservative town. Just ask Catherine Knight. She was born in 1955 and her parents had been forced out of Aberdeen because of their scandalous love affair. Catherine's mother, Barbara, had been married with children when her husband introduced her to a man named Ken Knight. Ken and Barbara commenced an affair, and when it was discovered, the word brushed through Aberdeen like wildfire, turning everyone against them. It was as if all the pent-up rage against their working conditions found its outlet in the couple. This was something people could get mad about directly unlike their bosses, unlike their lives. 
By the time Catherine was a teenager in the 1970s, she'd already been through hell. Her parents' romantic abandon had been a terrible mistake. It turned out that Ken was a savage alcoholic. With every successive pint, he got angrier, more violent, and more lustful. Up to ten times a day, he would rape Catherine's mother, Barbara, the woman powerless against the will of that big, strong beast. Her mind wrecked from the relentless trauma of rape, Barbara didn't respect the usual boundaries between parents and children. Instead, she told little Catherine all the hideous details of her assaults and about her hatred of sex and men. Later, Catherine would say that her half-brothers, the offspring of Ken's previous marriage, had sexually assaulted her as well, giving her an early taste of what men were capable of. For the rest of her life, she would carry a molten core inside her, a thirst for vengeance that threatened to erupt at the slightest provocation. You could see the explosive potential in her face. Catherine had reddish hair and crisp red cheeks, as if her blood ran hotter than most. The first eruptions took place at school. Catherine mercilessly bullied younger children, and when she came home one day with injuries inflicted by a teacher, it turned out the teacher had acted in self-defense. Catherine never learned to read or write, and at age 15, she dropped out. Things had deteriorated rapidly in the last year of school. The only family member she ever felt close to was her uncle Oscar, once a champion horseman, but now a defeated and depressed older man. Oscar killed himself when Catherine was 14, destroying whatever last link to family feeling she might have had. She would eventually claim that Oscar's ghost continued to visit her, but now she began her life outside the family fold. Like many young people in Aberdeen, she turned her back on school and set her sights on a working-class life. She was just 16 years old. On the killing floor of the Aberdeen slaughterhouse, Catherine found a kind of solace. Her co-workers suffered from the physical and mental strain, but somehow she thrived in this house of blood. She called it a dream job, oddly soothed by the regular motion of the blade and the sight of those big, strong bodies swinging limply on their hooks. Catherine slit throats for a while, and then was promoted to cutting out the internal organs, her knife getting ever more skillful. She was so proud of her prowess with the blade that she mounted her butcher's knives on the wall above her bed. Where others kept a crucifix, Catherine worshipped the stainless steel instruments as if they held an almighty power. Although she'd been traumatized by the violent rages of her alcoholic father, that didn't stop Catherine from falling in love with a hard-drinking brawler named David Kellett. David also worked at the slaughterhouse, but the carnage on the killing floor was like nothing compared to what he'd witnessed in his previous job on the railway. One day, David saw his best friend crushed to death in a shunting accident when the train switched from one track to another. 
and on another fateful morning, a school bus stalled on the tracks and was struck by a train, and David was the first on the scene. He managed to rescue some of the children trapped inside, but six of them were killed, and the sight of their mangled bodies never left him. The children represented an innocence even purer than the animals in the abattoir, and to chase their ghosts away, he would get wasted every night and start fights outside of bars. But if David thought he could dominate Catherine, he had another thing coming. Instead of shrinking from David's fistfights, Catherine joined in with relish. Soon enough, David realized he was the less violent of the two. He threw punches to banish the ghosts of his friend and the children on the bus, but she fought to revenge some deeper anger. And unlike him, she never tired out. There was no bottom to the rage. In 1974, David and Catherine got married. As if to symbolize the power dynamic of their relationship, Catherine insisted that they show up to the ceremony on her motorcycle with David on the back. The guests could see that he was obliterated with booze, barely able to stand through the vows. Then Catherine's mother Barbara took him aside and offered him some advice that he would remember with a chill. You'd better watch that one, Barbara said, or she'll fucking kill you. It didn't take long for these words to come true. On their wedding night, David and Catherine made love three times, and then the drunk and depleted groom fell asleep. But Catherine wasn't finished. She wanted a fourth time around, and somehow the sight of her sleeping husband caused that molten rage to erupt. David startled awake with Catherine's hands on his throat and her hard thumbs crushing his windpipe. There was a terrifying focus in her eyes, as if the marital bed had become the killing floor. David just managed to fight her off and catch his breath. A happy start to a marriage. And yet, he stayed with Catherine for ten whole years. But though they had two daughters, Catherine never felt secure in her attachment. She constantly suspected David of extramarital affairs and would pounce on any shred of evidence, no matter how off-base. One night, while Catherine was pregnant with one of their daughters, David came home late from the barn. The reason he was so late was because he'd participated in a dance tournament and had managed to last all the way to the finals. But Catherine wasn't interested in excuses. She set fire to his clothes and smashed him on the back of the head with a frying pan. Stunned like a cow, David fled the place and found his way to a friend's house where he collapsed on the floor with a severely fractured skull. But he didn't press charges. What was he going to do? Send Catherine to jail with their baby in her belly? Instead, that knock on the head seemed to erase his common sense. It turned out that Catherine's ugly suspicions weren't so off-base after all. 
Despite living with someone clearly capable of violence, David took the extraordinary risk of having affairs. Lots of affairs. But in this small and close-knit town, secrets had a way of coming out, and soon Catherine discovered that he was sleeping with another woman. The news split her right down the middle, and that innermost anger spewed forth in a new and frightening way. With mindless determination, Catherine took her two-month-old daughter from the crib and went out to the railway tracks. In just a few minutes, one of the scheduled trains would power through like a galloping beast of iron, so she set the baby on the tracks and walked away. Then, she took an axe and went into town and started threatening to kill people before the police managed to subdue her. Meanwhile, back on the railway tracks, an elderly homeless man known in the area as Old Ted was foraging for food. Suddenly he saw something incredible. A tiny little baby on the tracks. No one was around, and already the rails were beginning to hum with the distant approach of a train. Wasting no time, Old Ted clambered onto the tracks and seized the crying child. Just a few minutes later, the train smashed through, the conductors oblivious to what they'd almost done. Catherine was taken to a hospital, but managed to check herself out. Nobody apparently bothered by the fact that less than 24 hours ago, she'd been swinging an axe around town. When she got home, Catherine saw that David's car was gone, and that could only mean one thing. He'd left her for another woman. She took a knife and went looking for a ride. Eventually, she found a woman about to get in her car, slashed her face with the knife, and demanded the woman drive her around looking for David. Eventually, they stopped at a service station and the woman managed to slip away and call the police. When the officers arrived, Catherine had taken a boy hostage with the knife and was only apprehended when the officers attacked her with broomsticks. Perhaps it was that farcical element, policemen wielding brooms instead of rifles, but no one took Catherine's rage quite seriously enough. At every turn, she managed to talk her way out of a jail sentence. After the service station incident, she found herself in a psychiatric ward for a couple of months. She bragged to nurses that she'd intended to kill the mechanic who'd fixed David's car and made his adultery possible. But apparently, the need to heal was less urgent than the need to keep patients cycling through the beds. Because despite these frank admissions of murderous intent, Catherine was released. To the dismay of all his friends, David briefly reunited with Catherine after she left the hospital. After all, they had children to consider. But eventually he couldn't take the tension. The warning of Catherine's mother on their wedding day was too stark, too real. Something was going to happen if he didn't leave. And so he did. Catherine coped with the end of her marriage by replacing David with another man, 
In fact, she replaced David with another David. David Saunders, a 38-year-old former race car driver who worked in the mines. He moved in with Catherine but kept his own apartment as well. And just that tiny wedge, his lack of total submission to her will, opened up her anger. David loved animals and was raising a dingo puppy. Possessed by that deep-seated rage, Catherine seized the puppy by the hair of its nape and slit its throat right in front of David. Then she knocked him unconscious with a frying pan. The couple lasted a little while longer and even had a daughter. But the second David left her after she tried to kill him with a pair of scissors. How much of this jealousy was born of observation and how much was projection? In the case of the first David, she really was being betrayed. In the case of the second David, it seems the only other creature to whom he gave his heart was the puppy she killed. And Catherine was hardly a faithful woman herself. In fact, her next boyfriend left her after discovering that she was having an affair with a man named John Charles Thomas Price, a miner who went by the nickname Pricey. With a mop of curly dark hair, a bulbous nose, and a beer belly he kept well-fed, Pricey was a popular man around town. He already had two older children from a previous marriage, and he was drawn to the hot-headed Catherine. She liked to drink, and she liked to have sex, and there was a wildness in her that kept him young. His two children took a liking to Catherine as well, and Pricey enjoyed providing for everybody. He'd worked in the mine for 17 years and made good money, enough to move in with Catherine and his children in 1995. Yet living together as a family wasn't close enough. As it was with David Saunders, who maintained his own apartment, Catherine couldn't bear how Pricey held some little piece of himself in reserve. In his case, he expressed that final shred of independence by declining to marry Catherine in 1999. He'd been down that road before, and so had she, so what was the point? Living together and sharing the company of his children was close enough, wasn't it? Not for Catherine. One day, she made a videotape of some objects that Pricey had allegedly stolen from his job. In reality, they were out-of-date medical kits that he'd scrounged from the company garbage. But when Catherine submitted the tape to the company, he was summarily fired. That's how disposable you were in the mines. If the company felt you were a liability, 17 years of hard labor vaporized in an instant. Disgusted by her deception and disloyalty, Pricey kicked Catherine out, but she worked her way back into his life after he got another mining job. By now, the whole town knew about the insanity of their relationship. It was hard to believe that such a good-natured guy like Pricey could be sucked into the vortex of Catherine's jealousy and rage. Countless people advised him to break it off, if not for his sake, then for his two children. But he was relentlessly drawn back into the bright blue flame of their dynamic. The hotness of the sex matched only by the danger of her anger. 
the relationship was a pit as dark and toxic as the mineshaft. But when the whistle blew, he marched right in. Yet, for all his delusion, Pricey knew he'd gotten involved with something volatile. That's why he warned his co-workers that if he ever went missing, it was probably Catherine's fault. And that's why, when he didn't show up at the mine on March 1st, 2000, they went looking for him. After finding the blood on the front door, the police burst through the back and entered the kitchen. On the table were two helpings of food, shapeless balls of meat mixed into pumpkin, zucchini and squash. They'd been served from the pot on the stove. One of the officers opened the lid. The salty steam gushed out, and he saw the dark curly hair floating on the surface of the broth. The head had been cooking for hours. The flesh melted into gravy. But still, anyone could recognize Pricey's anguished face. This hideous stew was nothing compared to what the officers found in the living room. Pricey's headless body sat with its legs crossed, his left arm draped over a big soda bottle. But the body was all red, the veins and the meat exposed, not a patch of skin anywhere. Instead, his skin hung from a meat hook on the door. The hairy, freckled robe had been perfectly flayed, only a few flecks missing from the fingertips and toes. Lying beside the slaughtered corpse was a woman with reddish hair. Somehow, she'd slept through the commotion of the search, and they couldn't wake her now either. Catherine was comatose. They arrested her and brought her to the hospital, where doctors determined that she'd consumed an amount of pills that was almost fatal, but not quite. When at last Catherine roused from her coma, blinking awake, she was told she was under arrest for the murder of John Charles Thomas Price. By then, word of the killing had shocked the country. Not just how Catherine mutilated the corpse, but what she'd done with it afterward. The story caused the most iron of stomachs to bend in revulsion. When Catherine was brought to trial, the judge granted the jurors the option to be excused from duty because of the horrific nature of the photographic evidence. Five of them accepted the offer. But in fact, the trial would barely get underway before Catherine changed her plea to guilty in October 2001. Normally, pleading guilty would lead to some lenience, but this was just too heinous a crime. What takes place in an abattoir should never be inflicted on a human. That was a line we were never meant to cross. For the first time in Australian history, a woman received a life sentence without parole. The words, never to be released, branded on her file forever. But what exactly happened on the night of the murder? Catherine claimed she had no memory of the events 
and without a trial, the prosecution was never able to lay out its theory of the case. Nevertheless, police were able to determine most of what happened, and the story trickled out. The night began with Catherine sending Pricey's two children away for a sleepover, and then she went home for a while. Pricey came back to his place from work, said goodnight to his neighbours, and went to sleep at around 11pm. Then, Catherine came over. She'd purchased new black lingerie that day. She took a shower and put it on, and then woke Pricey up. This sort of gesture was exactly why Pricey maintained his relationship with Catherine. There wasn't another woman for miles around with the hot-blooded temper to wake him in the middle of the night for sex. That's when Catherine went to work. She brought out one of her prized butcher's knives, freshly sharpened, and plunged it into the big, strong man. Again and again she slashed and stabbed. Pricey woke up, tangled in the blood-soaked sheets, like a cow caught on the hook, and managed to escape the bedroom. His body gushing blood, he ran through the house, pursued by his butcher. He made it out of the front door before collapsing. If any of the neighbours had glanced outside at that moment, they would have seen a half-slaughtered man on the doorstep, crawling toward freedom. Then they would have seen the woman standing over him, the knife dripping in her hand. She pulled the dying beast inside, the front door slammed shut, and the neighbourhood fell silent again. In the abattoir, it takes just one decisive slash to end an animal's life. But it took 37 stab wounds for Catherine to finish Pricey off. When he was nothing more than dead meat, she expertly skinned him. Then she cut off his head and fired up the stove. She chopped vegetables, potatoes, beets, cabbage, and gouged chunks of meat from Pricey's buttocks and cooked everything together. On pieces of paper towel, she wrote the names of Pricey's two children and set them like place cards at the kitchen table. Then she heaped two big helpings of their father's ass onto the plates and set them out. When the kids returned from their sleepover, they would have something hearty and filling to eat. Catherine served herself a portion as well, but never finished it. Whether because the meat was too tough or because she wasn't hungry, no one would ever know. Working on the killing floor had never affected her appetite before. Instead, Catherine ate the pills and lay down beside what had once been her lover. It was as if all the rape her mother suffered at the hands of her father, all the assaults Catherine endured from her half-brothers, all the rage she could not exercise no matter how many animals she killed, had finally found its end. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. 
For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podomo UK on Apple Podcasts.